Eighteen. You're listening to R U F at U T podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We have been looking through the book of Proverbs here in RUF. We've been taking each theme, you know, a different theme each week and kind of exploring what does this book say about this particular subject. And we've been trying to say that most people approach life with a binary uh, a binary way of relating to the world. That things are black and white, things are good and bad, things are very clear. And we've been trying to argue that that's not really true for the bulk of how you live your life. The bulk of your life is not lived in black and whites. The bulk of your life is lived in this big gray area of unknowns. And the point of Proverbs is to furnish us with wisdom, which is really just skill in how to navigate the gray areas of life. So that's kind of what we've been looking at, skill, how we get, how we get skill at navigating some of the gray areas. And last week we began talking about um, our emotional life, that our emotional life is a big gray area. What do we do with our emotions? And so we looked at anger, and we're going to continue kind of exploring our emotional life this week by looking at anxiety. That you cannot really be a wise person. You can't do life well unless you know how to really navigate uh, and develop a skill at how to deal with your own anxiety. So let me read you one verse, Proverbs 12, 25, and then we'll talk about it. It says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Let me pray, and then we'll talk about it. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this chance to be together. I pray that you would unclog our ears and open up our eyes and soften our hearts so that we would be able to see and behold what your word has for us tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two times in my life that, as far as I know, and the best as I'm able to kind of assess myself, that I've had panic attacks. First time was when I was in seminary. It was during the first week of a semester. You know when you get around, you go around from class to class and you get the syllabi. And it's usually kind of a, like a non-week. Nothing really is even happening that week. But I remember getting a syllabus and seeing all the stuff that I had to read, all the books I had to read, all the papers I had to write. And then I go to my next class and see all the books I had to read and all the papers I had to write for that one. It just felt like by the time I got to the last class, this pile had just formed up. And I remember, I vividly remember sitting, I can tell you where I sat in the room, felt like someone was sitting on my chest and I couldn't breathe as I just thought about the amount of stuff that I had to do and there was no time, there was not going to be enough time in the semester for me to do it all. First panic attack. Second one uh, was last semester at Redeemer Church. As best as I can remember, this was a a panic attack. I was sitting in a pew, and I was supposed to get up front to do, lead some, help lead some part of the worship service. And as it was approaching my turn to get up in front of everybody and talk, I remember my hands were sweating, my heart was racing, I couldn't breathe. And it just felt like the world was closing in. And so I like, I grabbed the microphone, I handed it to my friend, and like told him to get up and do it and like 
he was just handed a microphone and told to get up in front of people and do something. He was confused. And really, since that moment, last semester, it triggered the season of life for me where anxiety became a very real, dominating uh, reality to my life, really associated with getting up in front of people and talking, which is really inconvenient because that's what I'm doing right now, and that's what I happen to do for a living. And because, uh, you know, I have this fear that if I get up in front of a room like this, I'll have a panic attack that comes out of nowhere that I can't control and uh, then look like an idiot in front of everybody. And so the fear of an anxiety attack, the fear of a panic attack, of course, only triggers more anxiety. And so it becomes this uh, kind of vicious feedback loop where the fear makes you think about the fear, which only makes you more afraid, which just becomes this and this and this. And it's all I could think about, couldn't focus. really didn't feel like I was going crazy. And I didn't didn't ask for it. It's not like I wanted this to come into my life. It just sort of happened. And my guess is at some level, uh, I'm probably not the only person in the room that feels something like that. I mean, you may not feel the same way about getting up in front of people or whatever, but... Uh, anxiety is a pandemic issue in our world. 18% of the adult population uh, says that they struggle with some form of anxiety or another. Uh, anti-anxiety prescriptions are always the top-selling drugs kind of in our country. This is just a mega issue, and it's mega complex. And so tonight, I'm not going to, I don't uh, by any means speak to this issue from, as an expert, This is way too complicated of an issue. It's way too over my head. But I'm going to speak to this issue tonight as really uh, someone who's kind of in the middle of it, learning and wrestling with what to do with it, trying to learn how to trust Jesus in the midst of it. And I think Proverbs has a lot to help us with this particular issue. So I want to look at two big ideas with you tonight. Very simply, just two ideas. What anxiety is and then how we deal with it. Simple enough. What it is, how we begin dealing with it. So let's look at what it is. And I want to draw your attention to go look back at 1225. It says, anxiety in a man's heart or a woman's heart weighs him or her down. Anxiety is described as this weight that just pulls you to the ground and paralyzes your ability to do life. It sabotages... Uh, Your ability to act, your ability to think, your ability to make decisions, your ability to express yourself. It's a weight, and it pulls you to the ground. One commentator that I was looking at this week, an Old Testament scholar, said that anxiety, the Hebrew word for anxiety here in this verse, uh, refers to one's emotional response to a threat of one's well-being. It's an emotional response to a threat to your well-being. And if you think about that definition, uh, I think there's, there's two components to it that I kind of want to pull out, pull apart. The first component of anxiety, if it's an emotional response to a threat, is, of course, fear. Fear is the first component of anxiety. It's fear in the face of uncertainty. So it's this, idea, it's this feeling of, like, there's no guarantee that no matter how hard I study or work in school that I will get a job when I graduate, and so I'm anxious about it. Uh, it's, this, it's this insecurity. There's no assurance that my investments are going to uh, you know, make money in the future, and so we're anxious. There, there's no guarantee that if you go out with somebody on a romantic evening together, some would call it a date. There's no guarantee that if you go on a date with somebody that they're going to like you, that you've kind of uh, 
that anything's going to even happen, and so you feel kind of anxious about it. That's what I mean. It's this fear, but it's in the face of uncertainty. But if you think about it, you know, not all fear is bad. Fear in the face of certainty is actually really helpful. Uh, for, for example, uh, last semester, RUF played this game called Shenanigans, which is this game that we play usually every semester or so, where you sign up, and when you sign up, you're, you're given a target, which is another student, to go and kill. And I say that in air quotes, because you have a water gun, and you go and you score them, and then they're, they're out of the game. But of course... As soon as you sign up to go get somebody, then somebody else has you, and you don't know who's going to get you. And so I was playing this game uh, a couple of years ago, and my target was Edward Hockaday. Some of you know Edward. And I was coordinating with his girlfriend, Kara, to set him up for me. And so she told me where he's going to be at lunch at this particular day. I was with my family. My children were in the car. And so I drove to this Indian restaurant where homeboy is supposed to be in there eating. And when I pull up and I park the car, my wife sees in the rear view mirror, she says, there's, a, there's somebody standing around the corner. And so I looked in the rear view mirror, and sure enough, Edward Hockaday is standing there with his gun, poised. And now I knew at that moment, what I felt in that moment was fear in the face of certainty. Here is somebody that knows that I'm coming. His girlfriend gave me a wage. The jig was up. And so now I knew that, uh, now he knew that I was coming to get him. And so I got in my car, drove away. He got in his car. And now we are doing this high-speed chase down Kingston Pike, which ended up in my neighborhood. My wife's getting scared because we're driving in my neighborhood with our kids in the back. Ended up in a shootout. I lost. I was bitter. But what happened in that moment when there was fear in the face of certainty, it actually worked for my advantage because my uh, instincts sharpened. My, my senses heightened. It felt like time slowed down. I was able to weave in and out of traffic like Liam Neeson. And so Fear in the face of certainty is helpful. But if you've played the game and you don't know who's coming to get you, you kind of have this generalized paranoia about everybody. So you hang out with somebody and you don't know, is this, per- like, is this person my- are they trying to kill me here? Are they setting me up to distract me so that somebody can come up behind me? And you kind of have this unhelpful generalized fear of just uncertainty. And I think that's in many ways what anxiety feels like. It's a fear, it's a paralyzing fear, but it's not attached to any specific threat that's coming at you. You So for example, I know that probably some of you come into a room that's this size with this many people and it's overwhelming and you feel some level of social anxiety where you're hands get sweaty, your armpits get sweaty, your heart beats a little bit faster, and you're just uncomfortable in a room with this many people. And those are what, you're experiencing symptoms of fear, but the, that fear is not attached to anything. It's not attached to a definitive oncoming threat that's certain. It's just an uncertain, nebulous, generalized fear. And that's what anxiety feels like. It's just fear in the face of uncertainty. But the second component of anxiety that I want to look at is, is this, is that fear or that anxiety is future oriented. If you think about it, uh, fear is always focused on the future. It's like your mind fast forwards into future tense land and kind of conjures up these what if scenarios and then you experience paralyzing fear if those things were to come true. 
So, um, you know, what if I don't do well on this test? Kind of a future what if scenario. What if I don't get that internship? What if I, I don't get into that fraternity or that sorority? Uh, what if I don't get into that grad school? Uh, what if uh, I don't get done everything I need to get done? It's, it's sort of this uh, fear in the face of uncertainty, but it's all future tense oriented. For me, I have this, um, <clears throat> I have a recurring nightmare, but it, it actually happens in the day in my own imagination where I visualize me and my family at the bluffs, like me taking my two kids to the bluffs in South Knoxville overlooking uh, the city, and there kind of we are above the river, and I have this, I have a vivid visualization of our son, who's three years old, uh, getting too far off, like getting too far out in the rocks, and then like falling off to his death. And I, I see this scene in my head, and I respond to it bodily, like it sends shockwaves of panic and fear throughout my, like I can feel it. And what's crazy about this experience is that I've never taken my family to the bluffs ever. I've never taken my kids anywhere high like that where something like that could happen. But it's this irrational fear where I'm going into the future in my head and I'm conjuring up a what if made up worst case scenario and it's, it like horrifies me. And I think that's in many ways what, that's how anxiety works. You travel into the future, you come up with these what-if scenarios, and it, it paralyzes you. Look at 1225 again. It says, it says anxiety in a man's heart or in a woman's heart. That means that anxiety comes from within. You're experiencing something inside of you, not something that's outside of you threatening you. It's all in here, and usually it's all just irrational fear. Look, look at Proverbs 28.1. This verse kind of speaks to this. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee and no one pursues. And so you have this picture of somebody that's running, just fleeing, but nobody's chasing them. It's this picture of just irrational fear, that your fear is not really rooted in anything. It's just something inside of you that is making you feel crazy. And so you have these thoughts like uh, you, you imagine showing up to class and they announce a test and you haven't prepared for it. And you kind of experience this feeling. Uh, you, you imagine the details of your own funeral. Uh, you imagine your future as just someone who's single and lonely. Uh, you, you imagine a situation when you, in which you can't control yourself. Maybe a situation like me where you're up in front of people and you're going to have a panic attack and like you don't know if that's coming. It's this horrifying feeling. And so in many ways, that's what anxiety is. It's fear, but it's fear in the face of the uncertain future. And it's paralyzing, it's, it's gripping, it, it sabotages your ability to do life. So that's what it is. Let's look secondly about what we do with it. And again, I know everybody experiences different levels of this. So if this is like totally irrelevant to you, like I, I, don't, I don't experience any of what he's talking about, then maybe what I'm going to share next can be helpful for you as you know how to relate to your friends that do experience this. How do we deal with this? I think medication is helpful. Let's just start there. I'm pro-medication in this department. Uh, but that doesn't answer all, that doesn't solve all the issues here. Um, exercise is really helpful. 
like go, be, going outside and like taking walks in the woods, people have found medically that that's actually helpful for you. Like, there's a lot of practical things I could share with you in that kind of realm. But what I want to do is really more focus on how we address our heart, how we address uh, this issue spiritually. So, so let me um, let's look at Proverbs 12:25 again. Uh, It says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. This seems to be suggesting that part of the antidote to anxiety is to hear a good word come in from the outside. To hear some message come in from the outside to pull you outside of your head. But if you're going to hear a good word come from the outside, that means that you have to have the ability to listen to it, to hear it. And so for our purposes moving forward, what I want to do is I want to show you that that means you have to turn some voices down and turn some voices up. You have to turn the volume down on some things that are happening in your head, and you have to turn the volume up on other voices. So let's look at these two ideas one at a time. Here's the first idea. What do I mean when I say you have to turn off some voices? This makes me sound really crazy now. Turn off some of the voices in your head. Um, look at 1513. It says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. And that proverb is really in two halves. The first half is pretty self-explanatory. It says uh, that your internal well-being affects your external appearance. Uh, A glad heart makes a cheerful face. If you're happy on the inside, it kind of influences and affects the outside, right? Internal affects the external. But what I think is really profound is the second half of the proverb. Because the second half of the proverb says the internal influences and affects the internal as well. Look at it again. Uh, By sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Your spirit is crushed when you experience sorrow in your heart. What is this saying? Here's what this is saying. What you choose to focus on with your heart, with your mind, influences and governs how you feel. What you meditate on with your mind, what you choose to set your mind on and your heart on, it will affect and influence how you feel. The internal does affect the internal. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've had this happen to you, uh, but uh, this has happened to me where I'm about to get into the shower and I hop into the shower and right before I get in, I remember something that just kind of frustrated me or irritated me. Maybe somebody did something that was irritating and you get in the shower and you're washing your hair and you're just kind of stewing on it. And by the end of the shower, you're ready to kill somebody. You know, you've just been, you've just been like marinating on this thing, this idea, and as those thoughts get uh, more and more, you know, embedded in your soul, you, you feel it. And the point is, is that what you choose to set your heart on affects and eventually gets down into how you feel. What you think about does eventually, in time, affect how you feel. Uh, Paul Tripp, who's a counselor, pastor, author guy, here's what he says about this point. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because uh, no one talks to yourself as much as you do. His point is, as you go through the day, you don't realize it, but you're having an ongoing conversation with yourself. 
as you experience things, you're telling yourself certain things about your circumstances, about yourself, about God, about other people. There are voices in your head that you're always hearing, that you're always experiencing. You may not even be aware of them. So as you go through your day, you say things like this to yourself. I don't feel like I'm good enough. Or I don't deserve to be happy. I can't stand being on the outside of that group. I hate being alone. What others think of me is absolutely critical to my well-being. People won't like me if they really see if they see who I really am. Success is everything. I have to be the best at what I do. I have to be the perfect son or the perfect daughter. I should never be tired. I should always be nice no matter what, no matter how I feel. I cannot change the way I am. I can't trust people. I'm afraid to try because what if I fail? I cannot let people see me as weak. I think I lost my mic, didn't it? I cannot believe that the mic is broken. But you know what I'm saying? We have on and on, we have these voices that pop up. And if you're not aware of the voices in your life, they will rule They will rule your life. If you're not aware of the voices that pop up, they govern and they control how you live and how you feel and how you experience reality. So you have a big test next week and you experience fear because there's uncertainty. You don't know what's going to be on the test. And these voices start popping up and the voices go like this. Uh, If I want my professor to be impressed with me, I have to get an A on that test. If... I want my parents to be proud of me. I have to get an A on that test. If I'm going to get into that grad school, then I have to get a good GPA, which means I have to get a good grade on this test. And those voices come up and they rule you and you become an anxiety-filled, stressed-out, workaholic monster that week leading up to the test. Those voices rule your life. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the show The Office, but... um, there is one of my favorite episodes is when Michael tasks Jim to hire a stripper for Phyllis's bachelorette party that they're throwing for her at the, at the office. And rather than calling up a stripper, Jim hires a Ben Franklin impersonator. And in comes this Ben Franklin impersonator with his fake wig and his, like, founding father's garb and he's talking about like the 1700s and here's what Dwight says in his monologue I don't care what Jim says that is not the real Ben Franklin I am 99% sure and so for the rest of the episode Dwight is trying to throw different trivia facts and questions at this Ben Franklin to catch him to expose the fact that he's not the real Ben Franklin because he can't he can't quite tell. And so towards the end of the episode, Dwight offers Ben Franklin some chocolate. And he says, would you like some chocolate? And Ben Franklin responds, chocolate? Where did you acquire it? This is a delicacy in the Amazon, but it has not yet been imported to the United States. And then Dwight gets frustrated and then just starts hammering him with questions. Who's the king of Austria? Joseph II. Who's the king of Prussia? Frederick Wilhelm III. Who's the king of England? Why, the tyrant King George, of course. Are you nearsighted or farsighted? Both. 
That's why I invented the bifocals. And Dwight just like, ah, he like can't, he can't catch him. But what is he doing? He's just hammering, he's just drilling him with questions to expose the lie. And believe it or not, that's exactly what David does in the Psalms. Connection to the Bible. In Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, David, there's this phrase that keeps coming up that says this, Why are you downcast, O my soul? I mean, think about that. Who is David talking to when he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. He's got enough distance from his soul, from himself, and he's looking at himself and saying, Dude, why, why are you freaking out? Why are you downcast? And so if you want to be like Dwight and like David, what that means is you have to have enough, you have to create enough space from yourself and ask yourself those kind of questions. You have to be able to identify what those voices are so that you can start turning them down, which means you have to start diagnosing and asking yourself lots of questions. Why am I feeling like this right now? What is it in this moment that I believe that I have to have? Why am I downcast? I don't know about you, but I don't naturally think about the way that I think. I just kind of go into autopilot and like live my life. And so I have to create and I have to create space in my life to intentionally be silent and to reflect and to ask myself these kind of questions because the question the, the voices are just there and they rule my life and they govern it and I'm not always aware that they're there. But first you have to identify what those voices are, those voices that come up and say I have to have this, I have to believe this and you identify them and you turn them down. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to turn up the volume of truth. Turn down the voices. Turn up the volume of truth. Look at Proverbs 15.30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. Good news refreshes the bones. You know, it's it's like this idea, whenever you hear good news... Something happens to you internally. Uh, If you have a friend that's really sick and they go into the hospital and they're going through surgery and you're just so anxious, you're just on edge, you're just waiting to hear what's going to happen. And then the doctor comes out and says, surgery went well, they're doing great, everything's going to be fine. That news, that good news comes and you... You exhale, your muscles relax, you respond bodily because of this good news that came in from the outside. And what's interesting is that the New Testament writers take that phrase, good news, and they use it to talk about what God has done for us in Jesus. It's actually just the word that means gospel in the New Testament. And the gospel is this, that we are all anxiety-filled control freaks that just want control of our life. I mean, that's what happened in the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. God said to them, obey me and you will live. And Adam and Eve and all of the human race after them said, Uh, not interested in that. We want to rule our own life. I want to be in control, not interested in you. And what that did is it threw all of humanity into a permanent state of anxiety, fear, and ultimately death. And God, in his kindness, rather than just obliterate the human race, he came down in the person of Jesus and said, okay, I'm going to take the very punishment that my enemies, that y'all deserve, and put it on me. I will take it on me. And so he gives up everything in order to offer you peace. 
He, ta- he takes everything on himself in order to provide for you. And that is the good news. That is the good news. And so I want to ask you a question. At what level on your internal volume knob would you say the gospel sits with you right now? Like when you live your life and you think about how loud is that message speaking to me internally, personally, deeply, richly, is that message, is that news really impacting my life? Or do I just kind of hear it and it just kind of bounces off? Because if you're anything like me, I live most of my life with that message, with that good news at a very probably low level on the volume meter. And what that looks like practically, it looks like this. Uh, I have an older sister named Amy. And a number of years ago, Amy decided to adopt a rescue dog named Wrigley. Wrigley was a, uh, a little black mutt that is about the size of a chihuahua. But it was like this, it had been on, living on the streets for its early part of its life. So it was this like street tough little, th- I don't know, little thing that um, basically had learned to defend for itself, to get its own food, to fight anyone that stood in its way. And so my sister meets Wrigley that's now at this rescue dog pound thing and decides to give up her money to bring this dog into her home, gives up her money to give this dog shots, gives up her money to give this dog food, brings it into this home with air conditioning and water and children and laughter and joy and glitter and fun. And here's this dog. And initially, this dog was still had a hard time adapting. It was still kind of in its street mentality and like would bite would bite my sister's husband and bite their children and like when they put the food out it would just like scarf the food and like eventually it kind of settled into life but it never fully got acclimated. It still occasionally bit. Uh, it was still kind of crazy and wild. It still kind of scarfed its food. It never really, it never really <laughs> learned what it was like to get acclimated to the love and the grace that this family had shown to it. And I think that's a picture of every single person in this room that identifies themselves as a Christian. <clears throat> if you identify yourself as a Christian tonight, you're basically a rescue dog that you've tasted and you've experienced God's grace and God's love and he's given up everything for you and he's invited you into his home and he's adopted you and he's liberated you and he's given you everything at at the expense of himself. He's asked nothing from you other than just to enjoy his goodness and we still deep down believe he doesn't love me. We still deep down believe (coughs) he's not in control. I've got to take control of my life. I'm on my own. And we bite back and we live these anxiety-filled, crazy lives because we don't turn up the volume of the reality that we're living in his house. Of the reality that we're just, we've been bestowed grace and love and freedom and we don't live in light of it. And so that volume stays low and our anxiety stays high. So what we have to do is we have to work regular routines into our lives to be able to turn that knob up. That we have to build routines into our life that we're intentionally turning that volume up and reminding ourselves of his love and his grace for us. We have to be a part of a community and be part of a church that regularly is reminding us of his love and his grace. Otherwise that volume and I was just going to stay low and we're going to be high on the anxiety. 
So I'll end here, and I just wanted to share with you, here's kind of what this looks like for me personally. As I've wrestled with this, um, with my own sort of issues with anxiety the past couple of months, here's what this has looked like for me practically. And maybe this will help be helpful for y'all. Uh, first of all, I went to a doctor, and I got some medication. So I'm on medicine now. And I, st- and I run a lot more. I'm exercising a lot more. I'm drinking protein shakes in the morning. <laughs> Kind of a big deal. But that has not changed the way that I think. That just helps with some of the bodily stuff. But all of my mind, my thoughts are still pretty prone to anxiety. I I was even anxious gearing up for what I'm doing right now. So it's like still with me. So what it does for me is I have to identify what what are the voices, what are the thoughts that are coming up in me. And for me, the thoughts that come up when I get anxious are this. The lies, the voices that come up are thoughts like this. Matt. You have to be on tonight. You have to be funny. You have to be smart. Uh, You have to succeed. You have to be likable. This has to be good. And so those are the voices on full blast inside of me. And when I recognize, oh, that's what I'm thinking, that's what I'm believing, I identify them as lies. Not true. And I combat them in my own way of turning down the volume, of recognizing that's not true, those are lies. But then I turn up the volume of the gospel on myself. I bring the gospel into my own heart, which is to say and remind myself, the only person that matters in the universe is the Lord Jesus, and I have his approval. Jesus is enough. The only opinion that matters, I have and I have a And he has a good opinion of me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so I begin to combat those lies with that truth. And what that does is it frees me to say, I'm free to be off. Because Jesus is enough for me. I can get up here and have a panic attack and fail and look like an idiot in front of all of y'all. And that's okay. Jesus is enough. I'm free to look stupid. I'm free to be weak. I'm free to fail. And what that does when I recognize those voices and I turn them down and I turn up the volume knob of the gospel in my own heart, it's, it has begun to liberate me and free me with the reality of, yeah, I'm a mess and I don't have to pretend anymore. So what I want you to do as we end here is I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are the voices that I'm believing What are the voices that I'm believing that is driving and fueling my anxiety? And you have to figure out how you're going to turn them down and turn up the volume knob of the gospel of grace in your own soul. That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I pray for me and for these folks here tonight that really feel paralyzed with this issue. I just feel gripped and stuck in this, uh, this feeling of fear and uh, just anxiety that just feels like it's just hard to do life. And it's so debilitating. It's so scary. It can be so shameful. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to um, process it ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would be very gentle and tender and gracious with us. Remind us of this good news that we've heard. And I pray that by your Spirit's power, you would enable us to hear it full blast. That our ears would be open. And that this good news that you've given, you've bankrupted yourself for us to provide for us would convince us 
afresh that we're okay not being okay. We're okay because you're for us and you're with us and you love us and you've given everything for us. And I pray that that would not just be words that bounce off of our ears but actually sink in and begin to transform us and relieve us and have our muscles relax and have us exhale because we can rest in the reality of your kindness and your mercy on our behalf. Father, free us. We really are a mess. We really don't trust you. And thank you that you love us anyway. Help us to trust you and to believe that we are loved. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.